as I was thinking about this morning, here's a thought that came to mind. I don't think there is such a thing as marrying the one. Now think about that. I don't think there's such a thing as marrying the one. Here's what I think. I think the one becomes whoever God calls you to covenant a marriage with. And that process of uh, oneness is a becoming. It's kind of like, okay, we've made this commitment, but God makes you one over the course of your marriage. Uh, if I could recall, you know, our marriage, uh, Megan and myself have been married for almost eight years. And when Megan and I first met, we, we didn't get off to what you would call the best start. I think it took her about a week to, to figure me out, and she's still figuring me out. I'm grateful for that covenant on the front end of things. You know what I'm saying, guys? I can tell you for sure that when she, when she first met me, she didn't think I was the one. I, I can recall our second date that we went out on. We were sitting at Barnes & Noble at the coffee shop there, and she's just kind of pouring her heart out, getting to know me, and I'm kind of looking off into the outer space. She's like, are you even listening to me, Ryan? And, and I'm like, oh, uh, yes, I'm listening to you, and I kind of recited some of the things that she said back to her, and she's like, oh, okay, you're listening. You just don't listen like most people do by looking at, at me, so uh, kind of funny, so you know, we, we, had the, we had the wedding, we had the cake, we had the limo, you know, we had all of our friends there. It was a great time, and, uh, and then we got married on October 27th, and now we're, now we're one, right? Now we're one. Everything's going to be great. Not so much. The covenant commitment to become one is there, but God has, has his work cut out for himself in making us one, right? It's because of our individual union with Christ that God has made and will make us one. That's how it works. You know, in Genesis 2.24, the scriptures say this, Therefore, a man shall leave his, his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's not in the leaving the mother and the father that the oneness happens. That's not what really makes you one, just by going through a ceremony. What really makes you one is this union we have with Christ. Now, what a lot of people forget about Genesis 2 is that there was no sin in the world yet. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And so, and so since this occurs, there's, you know, there's been some slight setbacks for our marriages, right? There's been some slight setbacks. This little thing called sin that you know, tries to tear us apart in becoming one. And I truly think uh, that marriage, the portrait of marriage, is in a lot of ways the portrait of our union with Christ. And the only way marriage works is uh, truly if, if you're one with God. As we pursue God together, uh, we become more like-minded together. This, I think, is the basis of every relationship, is our relationship with Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at today. The big idea for uh, our sermon that we're looking at today is this. Our union with God births our union with one another. So let's read uh, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. This is Paul speaking. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you'd meet us this morning. 
Lord, we pray that your spirit would touch our hearts with your word. And you would, you would open our eyes to the priority of our union with you. And how that manifests itself in our unity with one another. I pray that you would break down walls that we don't even know exist. That sin has built up in our hearts. And that we would just come to you this morning. And we'd be open to what your spirit has to say. That our hearts wouldn't be hard. And that your spirit would speak to us through your word this morning. That is our prayer. And we come expectantly. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at uh, the, the calling of unity first. Looking at this first verse. Ephesians 4.1. He says, you know, I, I'm a, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. And this is what I want you to pick up on. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Aren't those daunting words? I want you to walk like you're a Christian. Walk like you mean it. Those are daunting words to us sometimes. We're called to walk worthy of this calling. We have a responsibility as Christians to pursue this vertical calling that we have with God, but to also pursue this horizontal calling that we have with one another. It doesn't just happen. There's a pursuit, there's a walk that we have to be about as Christians. Now, God gives us all the power in the world through the Holy Spirit to do this, but there's this little thing called obedience that we must be about. When we hear his word, we must obey his word. So what is this calling? This calling, I believe, is our pursuit of oneness with God and then our love for one another. Or as Jesus said when uh, some, uh, some masters in the law approached him and said, hey Jesus, what's the greatest command? What did he say? He gave this great command. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. So you see the vertical and the horizontal. Well, Paul is building on that foundation that Jesus has laid. He's saying pursue God, pursue unity with God through Jesus, but then pursue unity with one another as well. <laughs> I had this sermon all good to go, and it was one of those things where I just wasn't feeling it. I was like, man, this is, this is great, this is God's word, this is awesome, but I'm not feeling it in here, God. And I don't know about you, but whenever you get up to talk in front of people, if I don't actually believe it and feel it, it I just have a really hard time putting on a face and throwing a bunch of words out for you guys. Now, God will do his thing because he's God, but I like to feel it. I like to worship when I preach the word of God. God, in my devotional time this week, the Lord led me to, to John chapter 2. And I'm feeling like this incredible burden to preach John chapter 2. And I'm like, God, what are you doing? Like, I'm in Ephesians, you know? This is our plan. We're in Ephesians. What am I, what do you lead me to John 2 for? And then I started to see the tapestry of how it was weaving all together. So we're going to look at something that you're going to think is kind of obscure to go to right now. But I promise God's going to meet us here. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, there's this wedding at Cana. It's, it's the first time that Jesus kind of, this is, it's his first public miracle that he performs. We're going to read about this, and we're going to ask God to show us what this means to us right now today. So I'm going to read this for us, and we're going to continue talking about unity and union uh, in the context of this passage here. John says this in John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, it's a problem, right, when the wine runs out. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I want you to focus on those four words. They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
And in, in, in the context, it's not as disrespectful as it sounds, I promise. But it's like, a woman? What does it have to do with me? What, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars that were uh, for the Jewish, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw, some of the, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and, then, and, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So where am I going with this, right? So there's a wedding going on. Wedding symbolizes unity, union. A celebration of two becoming one. Jesus shows up at the wedding with his mother as his date. And all of his buddies, right? Isn't that kind of interesting? Jesus says, date is his mother at the wedding. And I think we see the humanity of Jesus in this text in a beautiful way. We see Jesus concerned with the everyday ordinary. They run out of provision at the wedding. Jesus is concerned about it. He's not like, oh, you know, can't get my hands caught up in these everyday affairs. Jesus meets them where they're at. He's at a party. He makes good wine. How much, how much do you think that bottle of wine would sell for? I mean, that would be a good bottle of wine. If Jesus made that wine, it would be good stuff. The stunning statement of this passage that I said is this phrase, they have no wine. Because I think it means a lot more than just physical wine. They have no wine. So let's think about the physical implications for this family at the wedding. They've planned this big celebration multiple days for this wedding. And, and the family runs out of wine. They run out of stuff to drink for all the guests. So how would the family, how would they have felt? Well, I think they would have felt shame. They would have felt disgrace. It would have been a sign of poor planning on their part, that they weren't really concerned about this. So their identity, if it would have been in this ability to throw this good party, it would have been put to shame. And Jesus responds and says, hey, this doesn't have anything to do with me, but yet I'm going to do something anyway. And Jesus' mother, she knows it. She's like, hey, look, I know he says he's not going to do anything, but do whatever he says, okay? Just listen to the man. So he, he, uh, he goes on and he enters into this story of brokenness. He comes and he meets them where they're at. So what are the spiritual implications of what's going on here? Well, they have no wine. They have no provision. They have not planned their lives well. They have not planned this party well, and they are not ready. So how does Jesus meet us? Let's put this ball in our court. How does Jesus meet us when we cannot help ourselves? Isn't that the question? When we've done everything we can do in our lives, how does he meet us when we can't help ourselves? When we're exposed, when we have not planned well, when we've messed up and everyone knows it, how does Jesus meet us? Well, let's look at what happens next. Mary says, I don't know what's about to happen, but I've seen this look in Jesus' eye before, and something crazy is about to happen right now. So he tells them, hey, Guys, I want you to fill up these six jars. Now, these jars that he tells them to fill up, 
they're, I mean, they're essentially bathtubs is what they are. So, so imagine this, you're these servants at the party, you know, you got your, you got your towel on, you're serving, and they're like, he, Jesus is like, hey, we're out of wine, but I got a good plan, guys. I want you to go fill up the bathtubs with water. We're going to be good to go, I promise. And he's kind of like, what is going on? It's puzzling. It's like, what is going on right now? No one would have ever wanted to drink from these jars. They're, they're, uh, they're jars that people would have cleaned themselves up for worship with. They're bathtubs. So Jesus uses the very instrument. Let's think deeply here. Jesus uses the very instrument that people used to clean themselves up for worship with. And he says this. He says, I'm, I'm, you're going to fill these up with water, and you've been trying to clean yourselves up. For, here's the foreshadowing that's happening. You've been trying to clean yourselves up to worship me, but I'm going to turn that water, what you're trying to use to clean yourself, I'm going to fill that up with wine. What does wine represent in the Bible? Blood. Okay, think about this. Jesus' mom is mentioned two times in the Gospel of John. She's mentioned at the wedding at Cana, which is when he turns the water into wine. She's also mentioned at the crucifixion. So in some sense, we see this picture of, of, of Jesus turning water into wine. This is what's going to have to happen, mother. This is the only provision. They have no wine. So spiritually speaking, you and I have no wine. We've got no provision. We've got no ability to clean ourselves up for worship. We've got no ability to do life on our, on our own. We need the, the picture of that wedding, of the blood, of the wine going into those jars and coming out and being the best wine possible is the picture of Christ's provision for his people. This is what he's done. And so the image of Jesus' mother being at this wedding with him and then being at the crucifixion, it just all comes full circle. This is what will have to happen for God's people to be one with him. This is what it means to be unified with the Father. How does Jesus meet us when we cannot help ourselves? Well, he fills these empty, broken bathtub vessels with his blood, and that's where we find life. That's our calling. That's our first and foremost calling as Christians, is to be one with the Father. And we can only be one with the Father through the blood of Jesus, through his sacrifice, because we can never clean ourselves up enough to be approvable to God. It's only through Christ that we can have that. We must submit and trust in Jesus alone. So this is the calling we're called to walk worthy of. This is what it means to walk worthy of the calling, to walk in such a way that it pleases God in light of what he's done for us. Now, will we do this perfectly? No chance. We can only walk worthy because the worthy one is within us. That's the only way we can walk worthy. You, can't, you try to do it on your own, right? I mean, I do this daily. It's like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go show God how, how good I am. And God's like, oh, yeah, you're terrible. You're a sinner. Now, when I get back and I repent and I'm like, okay, God, I love you, Jesus. I want to follow you. It's like I'm able to walk worthy because I'm acknowledging my sin, but also acknowledging the power of his spirit within me. That's what it means to walk worthy. It's not so much about doing X, Y, and Z. It's about being one with God through Jesus. And then whatever God leads you to, you're walking worthy of that call. It's interesting, you know, there's a, there's a participation, there's a walk that's mentioned in this text. I would say that we would call that walk discipleship. You know, think about Jesus. Jesus calls 12 men to follow him. And 
There's this one, one scene, we're reading it with my kids last night in Caden's bedroom and talking about the first disciples. And, uh, and, uh, and, and so these first disciples, uh, you know, they had, they, had to, um, they had to throw down their nets and they had, to leave, they had to leave their old life. And they had to step into something they never stepped in. They had to get out of the boat and swim to the shore. There's a participation in what it means to walk worthy. It doesn't just happen. Now, God gives us all of the, the means necessary to follow in a worthy way, but we must obey that call. Think about this in, in 1 Peter 2, 9. Peter says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now get this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, the walk as a Christian is not so much about being saved only from something, but it's also about being saved to something. So we've been saved from wrath uh, that comes that our sin has earned, and we've been saved to follow Jesus, to cling to Jesus. Discipleship doesn't happen when you're spiritually wandering. We must cling to Jesus and follow him. And we have the power to do this, like I said, through his spirit. Think of it like this. There's a story in the Bible that kind of frames everything for the, the Israelites, and it's the Exodus. So the Exodus is the story where, you know, the, the Israelites were saved from bondage out of, out of uh, Egypt, and they were, God made a way for them to, to be one with him again, and, and they were saved from, from the punishment and the slavery and the sin they were part of, and he called them out into the wilderness. Well, just as Israel had to walk out of Egypt, you and I must walk out of darkness. Jesus has met us in the darkness, but we've got to walk out of it. We've got to walk worthy of the call. The Greek word for the word church in the Bible is this word ekklesia. I find it interesting that the word ekklesia doesn't mean like Sunday morning. It doesn't mean like, you know, singing songs. It doesn't, it doesn't mean like, hey, read your Bible. It doesn't mean any of those things. The word ekklesia means the called out ones. This is what it means to walk worthy. We are the called out ones. But as Paul says, we must walk worthy of that call. So here's our next question. What does it look like to walk this thing out? We must cling to Jesus, but what are some of the characteristics of one who walks this thing out worthily? Well, Paul meets us there. Ephesians 4, 2, and 3. He continues. We talk about the character of unity. We looked at the calling of unity. Now we move to the character of unity. So walking worthy means... We walk with all humility and gentleness, 4-2, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager (laughs) to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And there's some verbs in that statement, and some of those are a little bit of our responsibility. There's 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 a responsibility to be patient and bear, to maintain. I mean, these are things that are, that are, these are Christian responsibilities for us to walk out. Andrew Murray says this. I, if you guys have never read the book, Humility by Andrew Murray, make sure that you have like a, someone that's going to speak the good news to you right afterwards because you will feel about this high after you read it, right? The guys in my discipleship group, they're, they're like nodding their heads right now. Yeah, man, I feel real small. He, he gives us a great <laughs> glimpse of, of who we are and how we should view ourselves in relationship to God. It's called humility. He says this, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. 
C.S. Lewis says it like this. I like this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. What's he mean? Well, false humility. Humility is this this characteristic of of one who's walking with Jesus, who's been called out of darkness into light. False humility is easy to spot because a lot of times it looks like self-deprecation. And so what we do is we will... We will not acknowledge the inherent value that God has placed in us. We'll, we'll just kind of set that to the side and say, oh, poor pitiful me, like I'm humble. Look at me. But I think that's just as sinful as someone that's super prideful and arrogant. Because we don't have a right view of what Christ has done inside of us. Humility means to see yourself as God sees you. With infinite and inherent value, but with no more value than anyone else. That's what it means to walk in humility. We walk as those who have not gotten what we deserve. We think about God's mercy and about how we deserve something far worse than this great gift that God's given us of salvation. In our missional community this week, we began to to talk about this idea of just like, just radical grace. Like, like what would it be like to be a church where like it didn't matter what your previous life actually looked like like nothing could disqualify you that you've done to be a part of God's family. What would it actually look like for us to believe that? I know theologically we will say, yeah, oh yeah, nothing I've done can, can do that. But what would it actually look like for us to embrace people that, have, that are in the midst of such brokenness that they can, they can feel and see and know the love of God even though they're in the middle of it? I've been a part of, of glimpses of this in my life, and it is super messy and I understand why Paul mentions all these verbs here, all these things that patient, patient, enduring, and bearing with one another. That's because when you live out this kind of scandalous, radical grace that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, and it doesn't matter where you're at right now, God can meet you where you're at. When you begin to embrace people that have this type of physical brokenness, it is a radical thing, and it will change your life. Not just the folks that are coming in and, and flawed and broken and know it and aren't, aren't afraid to hide it, But it'll change you because you'll start to see yourself letting down the walls that you've built up to protect yourself from people that might judge your sin. It's a radical thing. And you know what we said would have to happen for that to occur at New City Church in our missional communities and the way we walk out life together? We said humility would have to mark our lives. And one of the things that births humility in us, I think, is when we see our sin. Seeing our sin is so important in the Christian walk. So much of the time we talk about, you know, Jesus paid it all, he did. But there's also, in James it says, confess your sins to one another so you may be healed. There's an active part of walking it out where we look at our sin. We look at it through the eyes of grace, through the lenses of the gospel. But we must look at our sin. Because what it does is all of a sudden we start to see ourselves as not so holy. And the only holiness in us is Christ. And when we begin to do that with others, that's a radical, radical, scandalous grace. And so if you're in here today and you're, maybe you're just here with mom or whatever, and you're like, man, I haven't been to church in a while, I want you to know that this grace can grab you no matter where you're at. There are no pre-qualifications except for the fact that you've got to be a sinner. And that's really good news. So we want to see that happen, that humility that comes with knowing that you're a sinner, but you're deeply and desperately loved by God. 
He goes on to say this, there must be a patient bearing with one another in love. To, to be this type of community, to develop this type of character among us, there will be lots of visible brokenness around us. We won't look like the Pharisees. We'll look a lot more like the, the woman at the well and the, the tax collector. We'll look a lot more like that. But then again, when, when, when Jesus is talking about how to pray, you know, there's the the Pharisee that's praying, he's like, hey God, look at me, I'm fasting, I do all these things. And then the tax collector says, Lord, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Like that's, that's, that's what it looks like for us to walk this thing out. As we acknowledge our sin. We must resist the temptation to modify behavior. It makes me a lot more comfortable. My kids look a lot more put together. You know what I'm saying? Some of you guys went through a stage maybe in life where you were, you know, you kind of were running a little bit or, or maybe you were just a handful. And your parents probably had this temptation to say, hey, man, look like you've got it together. I mean, you're, you're, giving, myself, you're giving us a bad name, you know. We must resist this temptation to modify behavior because lasting change, it only comes from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come from us acting like Christians. Bearing actually means enduring. That's what the word means. So endure in love with one another. Just hold on. Hold on. God's going to change us. God's going to make us more like his son. And this isn't a comfortable thing. But I will say this. If you're kind of investigating this thing or you're a new Christian, be where you are. Follow Jesus. Cling to him and let him change you. Don't try to let anyone change you. You can't change yourself. You're just going to find out how, how much more messed up you are as you try to change yourself. And there's more things to change because you see more things. Trust Jesus, follow him, cling to him. I can, I can bet when Jesus first called his disciples, <laughs> this ragtag group of guys that probably didn't like each other. I mean, a tax collector and a fisherman, a small business owner and a tax collector, can, I think they would probably butt heads a little bit. They probably didn't have a lot of unity. But we've heard the gospel. They came together enough through God's spirit that the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit fell upon them and they proclaimed the good news to the ends of the world. And we have heard the gospel from them being obedient. This is, what, this is the work of what God's, God does. When we experience differences with one another, I think our temptation is to bail out, to give up, to avoid that person. But what does God tell us to do? He says, no, pursue, endure. Be eager to maintain the spirit of unity. Let's keep moving on. Eager to maintain the unity through peace. I think part of maintaining unity, where unity begins to dissolve, is in our thought life first, and then through our words, mostly. Like, this is, this is where people get torn down. I find it very interesting that in Ephesians 4.29, right after he's talking about unity, he says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what builds up. So we begin to think ill of someone because they've hurt us. And then we begin to think about them and we begin to avoid them physically. And then we begin to talk about them when they're not around us. And what happens is, is the unity that, that Christ desires in his church begins to slowly dissipate and dissolve. This is why we've got to repent when it's up here. We've got to repent when it's here. Maintaining unity also means that we have to have very uncomfortable conversations. One of my mentors, his name's Rod, he says, 
some of the best wisdom he ever gave me was to move into the conflict. When you've got a, a, conflict, a conflicting situation, move into the middle of the mess and trust the Holy Spirit to work this thing out. Don't run away from it. It's only going to make it worse. We've got a responsibility at the church. If we want to proclaim the gospel to, to Lawrenceville and the world through the way that we live together, because this is what God does. Our, our community with one another is our greatest defense or apologetic of the faith. The way that we live together. And so we've got to pursue this unity. It's not just going to happen. I think people grow in grace when the soil of our hearts is nutrient-rich with peace, patience, humility. These are the imperatives that Paul says make up the character of one who pursues unity. This is what it looks like to walk worthy of the call. This is a picture of what it looks like to walk worthy of that call. So let's land this plan. Let's look at the cause of unity. Let's look at how all this comes together and we can live this out. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 says this. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So really what we see here is we see... We could break this down. There's, there's seven things mentioned here, seven unifying factors, but I think we could really branch them out into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's one, the Spirit. There's one body and one Spirit. Here's what I love about the church. There is one church of Jesus. Jesus has one bride. <laughs> He's not a polygamist. He's got one bride. So what would it look like for us to start living like He's got one bride. Now, I get we interpret, certain churches interpret things differently, but if they believe the gospel and they follow Jesus, you're going to see them in heaven. They're going to be one with you in heaven. So why don't we start getting to know one another now? Why don't we start living like family now? This is one of the reasons why at New City Church, we always pray for other churches. We want to be able to speak well of other churches. This idea of competition and who's growing and who's not. Look, listen, when, when New Beginnings Fellowship thrives, New City Church thrives because we're part of the same body. Why would I not pray for that? Some of you guys have come from different churches and, you know, you've got different experiences. I want the church that you've come from to thrive. And I want us to plant churches that, I mean, every church looks a little bit different because it's made up of different centers, right? And God's grace works itself out differently. We're all going to be a little different, but we're one in Christ. There's one body and there's one spirit. Then, then this kind of seven phrases come down to Jesus. So with Jesus, there's one, one hope, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Through my years of sharing the gospel with people, with people that are not yet followers of Jesus, the, the toughest thing for people to grab onto has been the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. What I find is most troubling to people cognitively is that they know people that believe other things and they can't imagine them being separate from God forever. Now, I would say this. That, that's, not our, that's not our job uh, uh, to particularly... Um, uh, to say that these people are going here and these people are going here. Our job is to read the word and to trust the word. Our job isn't really to, to judge other folks. But what we do know is that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And John 14, 6. And that passage, 
uh, seems very stark and polarizing, but I think it's the most comforting passage in the world. And I've said this before, that in every other world religion, it's your responsibility to save yourself. And there are, you know, there are ways to, to kind of do that, to kind of cleanse up. You know, your, it's, it's your job to clean up yourself, like the jars we were talking about. But in Christianity, it's about the work that Jesus does for us. It's just crazy. It seems, it seems too good to be true. Like, I just hit the lottery. Like, what happened? Like, Publishers Clearinghouse in the middle, halftime of the Super Bowl, they showed up on my doorstep. They brought me that huge check. That's what it means to live in light of the gospel as Christians. That's how good the grace of God is. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We're baptized into this community of Jesus' followers. We're clinging to him because he went to the darkness, and now we, we walk out because he's carrying us out of the darkness. We're clinging onto him and following him for the rest of our lives. And the rest of our lives will look like us walking out of the darkness. We'll discover darkness that we didn't know exist as you continue to follow Christ. And the thing is, is there's never any assurance apart from following Jesus. You can never know that you're saved. Do you know why you can never know that you're saved? It's because it's all up to you. And you never know what you're going to do next because you're a human, right? But the work of Christ is secured because he went, he went to the depths. He, he bore our punishment. And then he rose from the dead. Never to die again, as the scriptures say. You can't kill him again. So our assurance is that the thing that we're all afraid of, which is death, he defeated that. It, can't, it has no jurisdiction over us anymore. So Jesus lives in perfect unity in heaven, and he comes to earth and bears our sin to make us one with God. Like, that's the whole thing. That's the vertical relationship is we, we were disunified, and God made us one through Jesus. He goes on to say this. There's God. So the, the, the third part of this, one God and Father of all. We all have the same dad. If you're in Christ, you have the same dad. We have the same father. Now, just like with siblings that you have, there's this temptation sometimes to say, well, you know, well, you're not like Megan, or, you know, you're not like Joseph, and I really want to be like that. And there's this temptation for us to compare to one another. But the thing is, is that God really doesn't have any favorite sons and daughters. There's no favorites where, you know, like, oh, yeah, Joseph always gets what he wants or whatever. It doesn't work like that with God. God has such an amount of love for his kids that he loves us all perfectly. That blows my mind. There's one God and Father of all. Our differences, our uniqueness, scriptures say that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Those should lead us to worship, not fear. When I see how unique each of you are gifted, and, and the thumbprint, the identity of God on each of you working itself out differently, that leads me to worship, because I see, I get a, I get a bigger glimpse of, of how good God is, and how unique and diverse He is, and how He uses everything. He uses all those traits, even the ones that you think, ah, oh, man, this isn't a good trait. God uses it for His glory, He redeems it. Walking worthy is a work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit changing our character to match His, and growing us up into maturity through our head, into our hearts, and out through our hands. There's this walking worthy that we're supposed to be about. And we can only walk worthy because He's walked worthy. So let me ask you this, the same question that we got from John 2. 
How does Jesus meet us when we cannot help ourselves? When we say, got no wine, I've got no provision. We are filled up through the blood of Christ on the cross. That's how he meets us. Our work is to surrender to him and to be conformed to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord, I love your word. May New City Church be a church that loves your word. It's always surprised at how complex and how unique and, and how you speak directly to us through some sinner standing up talking about Jesus. Father, I pray that you would, you would bring us to a place in life where we would say there's no other walk I'd rather walk than with Jesus. Father, you would tear down the walls of the sacred and the secular and it would all be spiritual to us no matter what we're doing. That we would desire to walk worthy of the calling to which you called us which is to be one with you and one with one another. But we know that this is a miracle. This is like the wedding at Cana, except even more miraculous, that you would make us one and you would testify to the world that God is real. Jesus, meet us here. It's in your name we pray. Amen.